0: Matthew twenty one, eighteen through 22 is God's word for us today. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a lot of weight in the text that you have put before us today and what's what's next in our study. And I pray, Lord, that we will see it, grow from it, be challenged and encouraged by it. God, would you use your Holy Spirit working through your Holy Word to sanctify your people, to grow us, to draw us to salvation if there's any here who don't know you? But in all things, God, would you use this time to your glory? We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. The final week of Jesus' earthly ministry before the crucifixion was a very eventful week. On Sunday of that week, if you assume that Palm Sunday happened on a Sunday, again, some people don't, but we're not going to worry about that, on Sunday of that week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, astride a colt. And it was a public declaration he was making, saying that he is the Christ. He is the one God promised to send into the world for all of human history. And the people who witnessed it happen, they shouted and they waved palm branches and they welcomed Jesus as their king and they said, Hosanna. And that would have been a pretty spectacular scene to witness. And if the nation of Israel at that point had repented of their sin and returned to the Lord with their whole hearts, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he would have found a very different looking scene. The Savior should have ridden into the temple and into the courts, and he should have found a people who were honoring God. He should have found a place of love and kindness and and a place where the Gentiles were able to come and seek the grace of God he should have found people praying. He should have found people seeking the Lord. He should have found people turning away from sin and doing, doing good things, doing justice, doing things that obey the commands of God. But what Jesus saw, as we studied last week, is Jesus saw people being taken advantage of. He saw the temple courts in chaos. He found noise and he found godlessness. Jesus found price-gouging in the marketing of sacrificial animals for sale, first-century racketeering under the guidance of Annas, a former high priest. If you remember last week, he found found them charging airport prices (laughs) for animals to sacrifice. And then on Sunday, Jesus, after he saw that, he left Jerusalem. And when he returned on Monday for the second time in his ministry... He overturned the tables of the animal sellers and the money changers. He was angry. He was righteously angry. And no person in the temple courts could stand against him. Nobody fought him here. Surely, surely there were some who witnessed this scene and understood that something significant was happening. But as you and I saw last week, if you were here with us, many of the religious teachers, they totally missed the point. But what Jesus demonstrated when he turned over those tables in the temple, what he was saying, much like when he rode on that horse or the, the colt, the, the donkey, into Jerusalem, what he, what he was saying is that Jesus, he's the one who's over the temple. Jesus is the God for whose worship the temple had been built. Jesus showed us God's not going to tolerate false, empty religion. Religion is a business. You know, when John the Baptist preached preparing the way for Jesus' arrival, the message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his public ministry, he preached repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the people as a whole did not believe either one of them. They didn't repent. The nation had not turned away from sin. They had not begun seeking the Lord. They refused to obey the Lord. They they refused to recognize Jesus. They refused to bow to Him. Well, in our text for today, we're going to see a depiction of the consequences of unrepentance. And we're going to see the unbelief of the nation. And Jesus is going to show us that a refusal to believe in Him and to come to Him for mercy that leads to pretty heavy consequences. And we'll see that a choice to believe in and follow Jesus leads to something glorious. Now, if you want to be a note-taker, and a lot of us are, prepare just two main points if you want to make space for that. Our first one that we'll do is fear the consequences of unbelief. Fear the consequences of unbelief. Look with me again at 18 and 19. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, Matthew, in his recording of these events for us in the final week of Jesus' ministry... Matthew's not real concerned about giving you and me time stamps so that we know exactly how this all occurred. Because the story that Matthew recorded for us here in these two verses actually takes place over two days, which you can see if you read some of the other Gospels. It begins, interestingly enough, just before Jesus goes to the temple and turns over the tables. It concludes, however, the next day Probably Tuesday morning when Jesus is returning to Jerusalem to do some teaching. Why does he do that? I think Matthew, when he writes it this way, he wants us to see a really tightly bound up together, impactful point. And he wants it to come right after we see that the Jewish leadership is rejecting Jesus, that rejection we saw last week. Now, this story is not complicated. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem on Monday. He sees a fig tree, and it's got leaves on it. That's a good sign. It wasn't really the time of year for fig trees to have fruit on them in Jerusalem and the area around it. But if that tree has leaves, by all measures, it ought to have a little bit of fruit on it. So Jesus is hungry, and he walks over to the tree to see if it has any fruit. Again, this is not rocket science to figure out what just happened. But there is something fascinating here. Jesus is God. You guys know that, right? He's God the Son. Jesus, as the Son of God, has indeed chosen to take upon himself humanity. He takes on flesh, he becomes a real human being. And, friends, what we see right here actually reminds us of the humanity of Jesus and that it's real. Why? Jesus was hungry. See, you guys are too Christian, because that should have knocked you out of your chairs. For Jesus to allow himself to hunger shows us that he, God, has allowed himself to identify with humanity and human needs and wants in such a way that it ought to blow your mind. Jesus should never have had to feel any sort of discomfort. He's the perfect God over the universe. He's the creator of the world. But he chose to feel pain. He chose to feel fatigue, heat, cold, hunger. And all as part of living out not just the semblance of, but the reality of a genuine humanity. Joe read for us this morning Philippians 2. Starting at verse 5, it says, Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But then listen what it says about Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, which means, though he was really God, he is really God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the fact that Jesus let himself experience hunger is a reminder that Jesus, though being in very nature God, did not cling to his rights and privileges as God. Instead, Jesus humbled himself. He suffered humiliations in order simply to become human. And he did that to be able to rescue us by being our truly human representative before God the Father. Jesus did this for the glory of God. Jesus did this out of love for the children of God. And so when you see something in your Bible so simple and so beautiful as Jesus being hot, or Jesus being tired, or Jesus being hungry, or Jesus being in pain, remember that this is a sign of the infinite strength. Step that Jesus took down out of heaven into humanity. Remember that it's a sign that He loves Holy came to save. Remember this is Jesus doing what no false God of any false religion ever ever would have done. Remember, this is Jesus sacrificing just in his stepping out of heaven. I'm not talking about the suffering, but just in choosing to become human from being uh, seated in glory. This is Jesus sacrificing more than you have ever sacrificed in your life. He let go of infinite glory and infinite pleasure to take on human frailties. Remember, friends, and let that make you praise Jesus. Now it's hard to understand for us how did the limitations of Jesus by taking on humanity impact his knowledge? Because there are times we see very clearly that Jesus accesses information that's available only to God. Sometimes Jesus looks right through somebody and he knows their story inside and out. But there are other times Jesus doesn't seem to access that data. Here, Don't you think Jesus could have known from a distance whether that tree had fruit? Of course he could have. But he didn't choose to access that knowledge. Instead, Jesus walked over to the tree because he was making a point. Jesus goes over to the tree. There's no fruit. There's no figs. And Jesus pronounces a curse on the tree. May no fruit ever come from you again. Now, at that point, time passes that Matthew doesn't record for us in this little section. It's when Jesus is on the way into town on Tuesday, the next morning, that the disciples look over and they say, Oh my goodness, that tree that he cursed is withered. Jesus spoke a judgment on the tree, and it withered in a day. That, friends, is a supernatural judgment. Now, here's the question we've got to ask What in the world is this about? This is not, in case you're confused, about Jesus being mad at a tree. That wouldn't make any sense. Instead, this is symbolic, first of all, of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Christ. When God set apart Israel as a nation, He included in his law promises of blessing so long as they followed him in his ways. And God included promises of judgments on Israel that they chose not to follow him. And Israel failed to follow the Lord. And they constantly rebelled against his commands. And so as God promised in the Old Testament, he allowed Israel to go into exile. Last week we looked at Daniel 9 for a moment. And and we remembered that when when Daniel and the southern part of the nation of Israel was exiled in Babylon, God said to them, you guys have a particular time limit to put away all your rebellion against me. You've got a limited amount of time. He actually gives them just under five centuries to get ready for the arrival of God's promised king. Shape up. Put away your idolatry. Turn back. But the nation did not repent. They did not receive their king. They were not repentant toward the Lord. And this would, as God said, lead to judgment from God. Israel should have repented. They didn't. They should have borne fruit as a nation. They didn't. But they were like that fig tree. They looked fruitful on the outside. They had the temple, right? We got the temple. That's fruitful. They got the priests in all their fine clothes. They got the scribes. They've got the Pharisees. They've got the experts in the law. We are smarty, smarty. But they were empty of genuine love for God. They had become corrupt in their religion. They had turned away from the Bible, from the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament now. They had turned away from the Word of God to receive man-made instructions instead. They had begun to ignore the commands of God so that their leaders could cling to power. And worst of all, when God came to them himself, they refused to recognize him and refused to receive him. In the Old Testament, time and time again, you can think of uh, Hosea chapter 9, verses 10 and 16. You can think of Joel chapter 1, verse 7. Those places, God uses the imagery of a fig tree to stand for the people of Israel. And when he uses that imagery, often God says, you are supposed to be fruitful and you're not. I'll give you one example of that from the Old Testament. Jeremiah eight thirteen reads, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. We're not going to stay there, but that's an example of God speaking about Israel like a unfruitful fig tree. And New Testament readers would have said, "Ooh, there's an unfruitful fig tree. Jesus, when he cursed that fig tree, shows us that the judgment of God has now come for Israel. That nation may reject Jesus. In fact, in just a few days, they're going to put him to death. But the Lord will not let it stand. The Lord is going to judge that nation. Like the fig tree, they're going to wither. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. God, the Father, tore the veil of the temple in two from top to bottom and showed that there is no longer any sacrifice for sins other than the sacrifice of Jesus. And from that time forward, the nation really begins a decline in influence from which they never have recovered. Read Acts. Read the history of the early church from the time of from really from the time of Jesus forward. There there are some Jews, some people who were saved out of the nation, but they were no longer being saved out of the old law system. The only way to be saved is to come to Jesus in faith. But as time passed, more and more people were coming into the family of God who were Gentiles, who were not ethnically Jewish. Then in AD 70, God allowed the Roman army to come in and completely destroy that temple. And he showed that that religious system that he had set up in the Old Testament, that what it had promised, what it had foreshadowed had been completed. And now holding on to the temple there was an empty system. The nation had withered. They had not borne fruit. When Paul writes about the Jewish nation in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11... He says his heart breaks over the fact that the people there had rejected their God by rejecting their Messiah. Paul said, I actually am kind of hoping to make the Jews jealous by preaching salvation to the Gentiles. And Paul does point out, because don't hear any of this as any sort of ethnic prejudice here. There's no anti Semitism here. Paul says, there's going to come a day when many who are ethnically of Israel are going to come to faith in Jesus. But it's close to the time of Jesus' return. The tree has withered, but it's not dead. And no, this is not a dispensational statement of some sort of extra Israel plan. That's not where this is coming from. The point is, these people didn't do what God called them to do. And the nation was judged. Now, Okay. What what in the world does all this have to do with you and me? Doesn't this feel like Sunday school class where I asked that before? What does this have to do with us? Most of us aren't ethnically Jewish. Most of us are Gentiles here in the gospel. We live here 2,000 years after the time that Jesus cursed that fig tree. But I think there's a lesson for us. And I think there's a lesson that's even bigger than the fact that God focused on the Gentiles after Israel didn't repent. And here's what it is for you today, modern folks. Realize that refusing to believe in and follow Jesus led to judgment. Jesus shows us that in that tree, yeah, there's judgment for not doing what you're supposed to do. In the history of Israel, there's judgment for not doing what you're supposed to do. And the warning is clear. If you fail to come to Jesus, if you fail to believe in Jesus, if you fail to let go of your life, and if you refuse to follow Jesus, you too face the judgment of God. And so the point here is take this really seriously and fear the consequences of unrepentance. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't let go of your life and sought God's mercy and grace in Christ... The point is that you ought to tremble at the possibility of facing God after turning your back on his only son. To hear about Jesus and yet refuse his grace is the ultimate of rebellion against the Lord. And if the fig tree thing doesn't make you tremble, hear these words from the author of the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews ten twenty-six to 31 How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those words are not merely for first century Jews thinking about returning to the temple instead of following Jesus. Though they are for those. Those words are from God and they are for everyone who would hear about Jesus and who would decide to turn away from Jesus and pick another path. It is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to see that God the Father would send his son and Jesus would shed his blood And then that person would look to God the Father and say, God, I really don't care about your son, and I really don't care about his sacrifice. Can you imagine, even from our sinfully frail mindsets, would you, in the position of the Lord, Look at someone who says, I don't care anything about the blood of Jesus. I don't care anything about his sacrifice and his suffering. But you should let me into heaven anyway. Do you think, really, that that would be right in any form? Fear the consequences of unrepentance. God will not have mercy on the one who never repents. And who never comes to Jesus for mercy. So if you're a believer here this morning, this needs to cause you to cling tightly to your faith. Jesus doesn't lose anyone the Father has given him. Aren't you glad about that? And we know, though, that even though Jesus will lose none of those the Father gives him, the Bible commands us to fight tenaciously for our faith. We are to fight for our own souls. Now, we've never had the power to save ourselves. We've never had the power to keep ourselves. But God calls you to cling to him and trust in him as he keeps you. So be comforted by his grace, yes, but be diligent to follow his commands. And if you don't know Jesus, or if you're thinking about walking away, let it make you tremble. Second point for us this morning. Pray in faith. That's simple enough, isn't it? Again, you can write down other stuff, by the way. Those aren't aren't the rules that you only get one thing to write down. Pray in faith. Look at the rest of this passage. 20 to 22. When the disciples saw it, (laughs) they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now again, you've got to love the disciples, don't you? They're amazed again. They want to know how the fig tree withers so quickly. And that is, by the way, a miracle. Because even if that tree had died at the moment Jesus cursed it, it could have taken days, even weeks, for the, for the outward signs to be visible. Trees don't just die and show it right away. Jesus, though, he chose to use this as, a, as an opportunity to teach. And he's going to teach on faith like he's been doing all along. Jesus tells the disciples, if you guys have genuine faith, the miracle of the fig tree, man, that's going to be small. You're going to be able, if you pray in true faith, to see miracles as amazing as this Mount of Olives here being picked up and thrown into the sea. Now, Jesus is not actually expecting anybody to throw a mountain. That would be a useless thing to do. But Jesus is telling his disciples with genuine faith in the Lord, we can see miracles that go beyond our wildest dreams. And what should we think about this? Well, we don't have any historical or biblical record of a Christian hurling a mountain through a prayer of faith. Neither do we have any evidence of a faithful believer commanding a tree to with her. Now, we do, in the New Testament, have the miracles performed by the followers of Jesus, healings, even some resurrections. Early chapters of Acts, those miracles are thick. But for the most chart part, in church history, and even in the latter parts of the book of Acts, there are very, there's very little that looks supernatural, super supernatural, in the way that the withering of the fig tree looks supernatural and spectacular to our eyes. So where do we see mountains thumb? Well, you know, we could say, if we wanted to, oh, in the book of Revelation, in those mysterious prophecies, chapter eight, verse eight, in eighteen uh, twenty-one. There's a reference to a mountain being hurled into the sea. There's one to a great millstone being hurled into the sea. Maybe that. But both of those references, yes, they're miracles, but they're not about mountains. Both of those references in Revelation are about the kingdom of God coming and the judgments of God, falling on people who have rejected him. So I guess we could say there's a similarity, right? Jesus says to his disciples, I curse the fig tree it withered, watch out for unbelief the prayers of the saints of God do seem to be involved in the return of Christ and the establishment of his rule. So, I mean, we could say that because we ought to be praying forward to the kingdom of, of God to come May your kingdom, come and your will be done. We ought to be praying forward to Jesus returning again. We said it in Sunday school this morning, right? John's final prayer in the book of Revelation is even so come Lord Jesus. And so we ought to pray in faith and in hope, knowing that Jesus is going to come back for his church and it is going to honor God and it is going to bring the judgment of God and it is going to bring about the resurrection of the. Saints and it is going to bring about a glorious eternity with in the presence of God that we want so very much. But I don't think that's the mountain moving we're talking about here. Now Paul mentions mountain moving faith once clearly. Second Corinthians thirteen verses one, or first Corinthians 13, one and two. first Corinthians thirteen one and two. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Now see, there Paul's talking about spiritual gifts believers might possess. And Paul uses the biggest, most hyperbolic language he can use to say that love is the ultimate gift of God and the ultimate Christian practice. Paul says, you know what? Even if you have enough faith to throw mountains around, that means nothing if your heart is cold to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you can't care for other people in the body, if you can't treat other Christians decently, if you can't have mercy on people in the body, If you can't be kind and gracious to others in the body, then your gifts are nothing. By the way, how many many times do you think to yourself, I wish Christians would practice this one on the internet. I'm just saying. We We can speak the truth and be loving. But if you don't have love, I don't care how big your gifts are, But with those things aside, I think Jesus is making an even more simple point than that. All through this section, we've seen that the judgment of God is going to fall on those who refuse to repent and believe. What then should be the result for those who do repent and believe by the grace of God? The faith that brings eternal life is a gift of God, Ephesians two eight. Genuine faith, though, it moves mountains. It's strong enough to transplant someone from the kingdom of the devil to the kingdom of God, as we see in Colossians 1. And once you are a believer, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus is enough for you to see mountains that it would seem impossible to overcome. Move. For a Christian who has a hurt that he or she just can't overcome, the power of God is great enough to move that mountain. For a Christian who feels like he or she just can't get out out from under a sin, I just can't get away from it, God's power is able to move that mountain. For the Christian who who believes that, that a friend or a family member is just beyond salvation, they're too far gone, God is able to move that mountain too. We need to be praying and seeking the Lord in faith. And then the Lord Jesus closes the passage with a reminder for his followers that whatever you ask in faith, you will receive. Whatever you ask in prayer. If you have faith, you're going to get it. Boy, is that not the most dangerous text that we've read this morning. Mm -hmm. Is Jesus here telling us, if you can just muster up enough faith, anything you want will come to you in prayer. Is he saying, if you know somebody who's sick, if you have enough faith, they're going to get well no matter what? No way. That is not what this text is supposed to communicate. How do we know? It's not just from the surrounding text. But from all of scripture, we know this is not what the Savior is telling us. The witness of the Bible is not that as long as your faith is big enough, you can make God do anything you want. Yes, faith is necessary to please God, Hebrews 11.6. But if you pray, even if you have faith, it doesn't mean that you get to have your prayer answered in exactly the way that you wish. Because you know what? The sovereign will of God is more sovereign than your will. And more sovereign than your faith. The, The power of Jesus to heal was never limited by the amount of a person's faith in him. How many times did Jesus drive demons out of people in the Bible? You know that when he did that, he never stopped to ask a question of them about their trust in him? Listen, you raving, possessed lunatic, are you willing to believe? That's not what he did. He just cast the demon out. He wasn't limited by a lack of faith. There's no reference made to faith When Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law? There's no question even raised whether Peter wanted that to happen. He just did it. In John 5, Jesus heals a man near the pool of Bethesda. There's no mention of that man ever believing in Jesus. In fact, right after he was healed, he went and paddled on Jesus to the religious authorities. He was not a saved man. In Luke 17, Jesus heals ten lepers. Nine of them don't even turn around to say thank you. There was only one out of ten who came back and showed any evidence of faith by saying thank you, Lord Jesus. Now at the same time, in the Bible, there are many people who had great, genuine faith and they could not heal. In Paul's life and ministry, Paul said, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take away from me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, and God told me no. That's in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. By the way, Paul doesn't say, God said, Come on, Paul, just a little more faith and you'll get it. He just told him, No, my grace is sufficient for you. In the second letter to Timothy, Paul said, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. 2 Timothy 4.20 do, do you not think Paul had enough faith to bring about healings? How many healings do we see Paul doing? And yet Paul couldn't fix Trophimus? Was he mad at Trophimus? I left him sick because he had ticked me off. No! But the faith of Paul in that circumstance did not bring about a healing in, in that case. It didn't bring about a healing in every case. So do not, friends, make the mistake of thinking that your faith is the final determining decision maker of whether your prayer works. God is sovereign, not us. So this passage is not Jesus saying if you only have faith, you can boss God around. If you only have faith, you can make God do anything you want Him to do. No, the passage is Jesus telling us that if we have faith in Him, as as we trust in Him, as we know Him, as we are sanctified by Him, as we obey Him, we are going to learn to pray in accord with the will of God. And when we pray in accord with the will of God, the prayers that we pray in accord with the will of God are going to be answered by God to the glory of God. 1 John 5, 14, John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. According to his will, he hears us. But be careful. Be careful. Because how many of us have prayed for something that didn't come to pass? You have, haven't you? Am I the only one? Don't assume that you would have gotten everything you wanted if you had been able to muster enough faith. That is a dangerous teaching that leads to enormous amounts of false guilt and disappointment among Christians. Instead, think about what the old Puritan Matthew Henry once wrote. If I have not everything I desire, I may conclude it is either not fit for me or not good for me or I shall have it in due time. If I have not everything I desire, I may conclude it is either not fit for me, not good for me, or I shall have it in due time. Jesus didn't say this prayer to confuse us, friends. He said it to comfort us. Genuine faith in Jesus as the Lord leads to the moving of mountains. That's true. Genuinely knowing the Lord leads to you praying in faith genuinely praying in faith that God be magnified first and foremost and that we be made into his likeness, that will result in you being transformed, sanctified by God. And if, even, if, even if you think to yourself, my sanctification is impossible, you don't know how messed up I am. I can't be good. I never have been good. Jesus says, you know the Lord and you pray in faith. And the Lord, in His Spirit, will start changing you. Dear, dear friends, we've got to learn from the judgment that we see on the fig tree and the comfort that the that the Savior gives His disciples. Yeah, if you refuse to believe in Jesus, that leads to destruction. But believing and following the Lord Jesus leads to life, miraculous, mountain-moving life. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, or if you're here in this somewhere else and you're not yet a believer, this is a really simple call. Believe in Jesus. Turn away from sin. Commit to follow Him. The Lord will give you life. The Lord warns you, though, that if you continue to stand against Him, that is dangerous. It is eternally, forever dangerous to turn your back on Jesus. And if you are a believer, trust in the Lord. And pray in faith. You might say, I don't see mountains moving. Stop and think for a second, will you? What's the Lord doing in your life? Is the Lord not showing you from day to day how much you need Him? That's no longer a rhetorical question. Is the Lord showing you how much you need Him? Is the Lord not showing you your sin and your need of grace and sanctification? Is the Lord not reminding you in His Word how great are His glories and how wonderful it's going to be when He returns? That's God moving. Believers, there are things you can do to be helpful here. By the power of God, by the grace of God. I mean, again, you didn't save yourself, you don't keep yourself, but there are things that God lets you do to participate now. Do stuff that will strengthen your faith. Like what you say? Pray? Talk to God? Bow and show him he's king and you're not? Study the word of God? Spend time around other believers talking about the word of God? Listen to me whether I know you or whether I don't, if you isolate yourself from the family of God, if you isolate yourself from other Christians, you will not grow. You won't. And by the way, you might be smarter than every other Christian you know. And there may be no Christian out there who does it the way you think they should. Fine. Get on the team and come help. But if you isolate, you won't grow. Spend time with other believers in prayer. We do that every other Wednesday in our prayer meeting. The folks in the 242 group on the south side of the city, that's from Acts 2.42, in case you wonder why the 242 is there. Uh, They meet and they fellowship and they pray together. These are available for you to be a part of it. Repent of sin. Get to know the ways of God so that when you pray, you pray things that please God. The more you delight yourself in the Lord, as Psalm 37 four says, the more your heart's desires are going to be met. But friends, that may not be physical comfort, but I can tell you this. It will be the comfort of knowing that your heart is being shaped by God to the glory of God. Believe. Christians, believe. Don't stop. Pray in faith. See God transform your life. That's the moving of a mountain. Be conformed to the image of God. That's the moving of a mountain. Believe and avoid the dangers of a withering unbelief. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord, I believe your word is good and I know this, that I need your grace and your mercies on me. Please, Lord, bring about the kind of faith that will trust you and bring about spiritual eyes that that all of us might see your miracles at work in us. We're not trying to be charismatic here, Lord, but we know you're at work in your people. And we would ask you to do glorious things as you transform us and conform us into the likeness of your Son. God, please be glorified. Please be magnified. If anyone hears this and isn't yet a child of God in Christ, by your sovereign power, have mercy on them. For all who know you, reshape us to declare how worthy worship and praise and honor and glory you are. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.